turning in your Bibles this morning to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, and we want to read verse 14. But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we ask you to For a few moments this morning, show us the glories of the cross. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. That's what we want to think about this morning, the glories of the cross. We sing about it all through the year. We celebrate it at Easter. Many wear the cross as a piece of jewelry. Some in sincerity, others as a good luck charm. Some have it around the rearview mirror in their cars or carry it in their pockets. And yet, how much do we actually think about this emblem of suffering and shame? That question is so important because our comprehension of the love of God which determines who we're living for, ourselves or unto him which died for us and rose again is measured by the depth of our understanding of the cross. We see the cross for the first time in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. I'd like for you to turn back there, if you will. And I know when we turn to this particular verse of scripture that the thought might go through our mind I know what this verse says it's been read over and over I'm sure hundreds of times in this church but I believe that after we have spent if we're saved I believe that after we have spent 15 or 20,000 years or more studying this verse with the Lord in glory, we'll only begin to get ankle deep in it. And then after another 15 or 20,000 years, then we might actually swim in the waters of this verse. In Genesis 3.15, God tells the serpent, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It, the seed of the woman, shall bruise thy head, the head of the serpent, and thou, the serpent, shalt bruise his heel, the heel of the seed of the woman. What strange language. 
thou shalt bruise his heel. Why would the Spirit of God tell us that? The answer is to show us the cross. And show us the cross 3,700 years before that form of execution was used by the Persians. They are generally regarded as the first people to use it. And I use the word used instead of the word invented because the cross originated not with man but with God. Lord Jesus Christ is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And so before the foundation of the world, God designed and planned the death that his son would die. And I think that is confirmed in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23, where God says, If a man have committed a sin worthy of death, and he be to be put to death, and thou shalt hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night upon the tree. But thou shalt in any wise bury him that day. For he that is hanged is accursed of God. That's a prophecy of the cross of Calvary. It's a prophecy of the time when the Lord Jesus Christ the one who had not committed a sin worthy of death would be put to death. It's a prophecy of the time when he would be cursed, made a curse for us. And his body did not remain on the tree all night. He was buried that day. This is a prophecy of the cross of Calvary. And it's not man who is talking about this means of death, it is God himself who was talking about it. He designed the cross to be the most painful death that there would ever be. I was reading an article this week and it pointed out that the English word excruciating, a word that describes the most intense and unbearable pain, comes from the word Crucifixion. If you write it down and put them side by side, it's very plain. And it's like that because death by crucifixion was reserved for the vilest criminals. Seven to nine-inch nails were driven into the hands of the Lord Jesus. Now, if you read some of the Commentaries, and not all of them are Bible commentaries, but if you read some of these things on the crucifixion, you'll find that some of them say that the nails were driven into the wrists of the Lord. There are three references to the hands of the Lord being pierced. One we talked about uh, the other Sunday night, Psalm 22 and verse 16, where the Lord Jesus said, they pierced my hands and my feet. The Hebrew word there is number 3027. We see that same word again in Zechariah chapter 13 
in verse 6 when Israel looks on the Lord Jesus and they say, what are these wounds in thine hands? The word hands there is the same word. That word appears 1,615 times in the Old Testament. 1,359 times it is translated hand or hand, and not one time, not once, is it translated wrist. In John 10, 27, the Lord Jesus told Thomas to reach hither thy finger and behold my hands. The word hands there is number 5495 in the Greek dictionary of your Strong's Concordance. And that's how it is translated in our Bible. In fact, the word wrist is not even found in our King James Bible. And so when the Lord says, they pierced my hands, when he mentions the wounds in his hands, when he says, behold my hands, I believe that's exactly what he means. The creator, the God who made our hand and who made our wrist certainly knows the difference between them. And he says his hands were pierced and wounded. And so the nails were driven into the Lord's hands, causing constant and excruciating pain. The nails were driven into his feet. And his knees then were flexed so that the weight of the body pushed down. And the ankles then supported the body's weight. Dr. Kayleen Schreier wrote an article called The Science of the Crucifixion. She said, normally to breathe in the diaphragm, the large muscle that separates the chest cavity from the abdominal cavity, must move down. This enlarges the chest cavity and air automatically moves into the lungs. To exhale, the diaphragm rises up, which compresses the air in the lungs and forces the air out. As the Lord Jesus hangs on the cross, the weight of his body pulls down on the diaphragm and the air moves into his lungs and remains there. Now listen to this. The Lord Jesus must push up on his nailed feet, which would cause more pain. He must push up on his nailed feet to exhale. This pushing up would bruise his heel. This is the death of the cross. And God is telling us about it. He's prophesying of it 3,700 years before it existed on earth. And notice when the Lord is telling us about the cross. He's telling us about it on the very day that man sinned. That means that the cross was not an afterthought on the part of God. He didn't go off somewhere and say, now let me think about what I'm going to do. He knew exactly what he was going to do. God's plan from eternity past was the cross. When we read Galatia, or rather Genesis 3.15, what comes to mind is Romans 5 and verse 20. But where sin abounded, and it abounds here because Adam and Eve have just sinned, and the wages of sin is death. Adam and Eve have just died spiritually. 
Their sin has eternally separated them from God. And the result of their spiritual death will ultimately be physical death. Sin abounded here and so abounded that as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin and so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. And so sin is abounding but the rest of Romans 5 and verse 20 says but where sin abounded Grace, grace did much more abound. And where do we see that grace abounding? Right here in Genesis 3 and verse 15. In the bruised heel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right here where the cross is mentioned for the first time. This is where we see grace abounding. The cross is where we see the grace of God. The cross is where we see the love of God. Turn over a few pages to Genesis chapter 22, if you will. Genesis chapter 22. Let's read it, verse 1. And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. You may have marked it in your Bible before, but if you haven't, it's worth noting that Genesis 22 and verse 2 is the first time that we find the word love in the Bible. And what do we see at the first mention of love? We see the love of a father, Abraham, for his only son, Isaac. And what is this first mention of love associated with? It's associated with the sacrifice and death of this only son. And this first mention of love in the Bible pictures the love of God. The love of God the Father for His only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And how is this love of God manifested? Manifested by the sacrifice. By the offering of His only begotten Son on Mount Moriah. Which is Mount Calvary. It's the very same place. The first mention of love in the Bible demonstrates John 3.16, that most familiar of verses. For God so loved the world, how was his love demonstrated? That he gave his only begotten son. Genesis 22 and verse 2 demonstrates Romans 5 and verse 8. But God commendeth his love toward us. And how did God command? How did he demonstrate? How did he display his love toward us? The rest of that verse tells us, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Turn over, way over in the New Testament, if you will, to the book of 1 John. 1 John 
We, we could have looked at, at all of these verses, but I wanted us to take a look at this one because there, there's something there that, a word there that I think is um, not only very important, but, but very precious. It's another example of how every word of God is pure. First John chapter 4, and look at verse 10. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And what is the demonstration of his love for us? He sent his son to be the propitiation. It's a great big word that we sort of put off in our theological uh, bag somewhere. But it's a great big word. It's, a, it's an important word that means a substitutionary sacrifice. And so God's love is demonstrated as he sent his son to be the propitiation, the substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. Now, where did that happen? Where did that happen? Well, notice the first word of this verse. Herein. Herein. I never looked that word up before. But one of the meanings of that word is in this place. In this place. So in this place, God loved us. In this place, God demonstrated his love by making his son the substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. And where is this place? Well, look at Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. Look at Luke chapter 23 and verse 33. And when they were come to the place, the place. That's where that word herein takes us, herein. In this place, where is the place? Luke 23, 33. And when they were come to the place, which is called Calvary, there they crucified him. The place is Calvary. The place is the cross. That is where God so loved the world. That is where God commendeth his love toward us. The place is the cross. That's where he sent his son to be the propitiation, the substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. In Genesis 3.15, we read the first prophecy of the coming of the Savior. He would be... Uh, the seed of a woman, not the seed of a man. He would be born of a virgin. And he came to die. This first prophecy in Genesis 3.15 is of the coming Savior and his death on the cross of Calvary. But if you'll look back at Luke chapter 2, I want us to see 
the consistency of the message. Genesis 3.15 is telling us the Savior's coming. The seed of the woman is coming. And he's coming to die. He's coming to have his heel bruised. And the message is consistent. The prophecy is fulfilled perfectly. Look at Luke chapter 2 and verse 8. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Now we've talked before about this 12th verse. In fact, I think we talked about it uh, just a few weeks ago at Christmas. How the babe, the Lord Jesus Christ, being wrapped in swaddling clothes was a prophecy of his death. A prophecy of the time when Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, would take the body of Jesus and wrap it in swaddling clothes, fine linen clothes, and lay the Lord Jesus in the tomb after his death on the cross. But verse 12 is not the only prophecy of the cross here at the Lord's birth. Look at verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. I have to confess to you that I have taken so much of this chapter and put it into the children's Christmas program category. How many times have we heard the, the, the message of the angels in verse 14. Maybe our, our little girl or granddaughter had that part, was part of the multitude of angels that said glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. The angels gave this message to the shepherds at the birth of the Lord Jesus. Glory to God in the highest. God was going to be glorified in the highest by his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And how and when would that happen? Well, keep your place here and turn over to John chapter 12. I think this is the last place I'm going to have you turn to. John chapter 12. Look at verse 23. And Jesus answered them saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And how was he going to be glorified? Verse 24. Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. 
But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Now look at verse 27. The Lord Jesus, as he is thinking about this hour that he is going to be glorified on the cross, that's what verse 24 is talking about. He is the corn. He is the seed of wheat that is going to fall into the ground and die. And as he's thinking about this, verse 27, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. And so the Lord Jesus says in verse 28, Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Glory to God in the highest. The highest glory of God took place on the cross of Calvary. That's where God glorified his name. He glorified his name. Philippians 2 and verse 8 tells us that the Lord Jesus was found in fashion as a man. God sent forth his son, made of a woman. He was the seed of a woman, just as we read in Genesis 3.15. And we read there in Philippians, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him. That's what verse 28 says. The Lord Jesus says, Father, glorify thy name. Glorify thy name. Not my will, but thine be done. This is why I came. I came forth to this hour. And the response from heaven was, then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. And he did. Just as he said he would in Luke chapter 2 and verse 14, at the birth of the Lord Jesus. Glory to God in the highs. Now, that's the cross. And notice the next words of Luke 2, 14. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Folks, that is what the cross accomplished. Peace. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 20 says, And having made peace... Through the blood of his cross. By him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. Yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. To present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. The cross is the message of this book. The cross is where we see the grace of God. The cross is where, by the grace of God, the Lord Jesus tasted death for every man. The cross is where we see the love of God. C.H. McIntosh, one of the old brethren writers, summarizes this so well. 
He said, the cross unfolds God in his most wonderful character. Creation never could do this. Providence never could do this. In creation and providence, I see God's power, his majesty, and his wisdom. But power, majesty, and wisdom could not justify God in receiving me. The introduction of the cross, however, changes the aspect of things entirely. There I find God dealing with sin in such a manner as to glorify himself infinitely. There I see the magnificent display and perfect harmony of all the divine attributes. I see love. And such love as captivates and assures my heart. Romans 8 and verse 32 says, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? He says, I see love, and such love as captivates and assures my heart and weans it in proportion as I realize it from every other object. That's what our text said. God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. McIntosh says, I see wisdom and such wisdom as baffles devils and astonishes angels. I see power and such power as bears down all opposition Romans 8, 33, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justified. He says, I see grace, and such grace as sets the sinner in the very presence of God, yea, puts him into his bosom. Where could I see all these things but in the cross? Nowhere else. Look where you please, and you cannot find aught that so blessedly combines these two great points. And the two great points he's talking about are love and grace. And all of the love of God and all of the grace of God is directed toward one object, sinners. Sinners. Earlier in this message, we mentioned that death by crucifixion was reserved for the vilest of criminals. God said, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. But when we look at the cross, who do we see there? We should see ourselves. We're the vilest of criminals. We're rebels against God with a heart that is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked with a heart whose every imagination is only evil continually. But who do we see on the cross? The Lord Jesus Christ. God manifest in the flesh. God who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, made higher than the heavens. The Lord Jesus Christ who knew no sin, who did no sin, Neither was guile found in his mouth, in thought, in word, in deed. The Lord Jesus Christ is perfect. 
And yet there he is on the cross. Bearing our sin in his own body on the tree. Being made sin for us. Being made a curse for us. That we, the vilest of criminals, might be made the righteousness of God in him. This is the cross. The glory of the cross. And it's the message of this book from Genesis to Revelation. There is no other message. There is no other way to be saved. I must needs go home by the way of the cross. There's no other way but this. Are you saved today? That's the question. Have you believed the message of the cross? I know you know it. But have you believed it? It's the only message that can save your soul. The good news this morning is you can believe it. Right where you are, you can, by faith, look to the cross. Look to the Lamb of God. And see the Lord Jesus taking your place there. Dying. The just for the unjust. That he might bring us to God. This morning with a broken and a contrite heart. Through your smitten heart with tears as the hymn writer wrote. As you see your sin. As you see the only thing that you're worthy of. Death and hell for all eternity. You can come to the Lord Jesus with a broken and a contrite heart. And ask him to be your savior. And he will. He'll save you. We know the Lord today. We don't, <laughs> we don't have time to talk about it this morning. But the cross is how we live the Christian life. That's why we began with Galatians 6.14. But God forbid that I should glory. Save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. By whom the world is crucified unto me. And I unto the world. Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, Paul said. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The cross is how we live the Christian life. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for these few moments together this morning to consider the glories of the cross. And if we know you as our Savior, we'll be considering them through all the endless ages of eternity. Hallelujah, what a Savior. We pray that there's anyone here this morning who has never trusted you as their Savior, that today they would see that it was for them the Savior died. It was for them that he went to the cross of Calvary. It was their sin and their rebellion and their wickedness that nailed him to the tree. We pray that they would see their need this morning to turn to him in repentance and faith and trust him to be their Savior. And Father, if we know you today, we pray that we would stay very near to the cross. We would be crucified with you there and reckon as you reckon that our old man has been put to death 
that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.